0: Hello, everyone. We're so excited to be here for another hidden hour. For those new to our channel and to our podcast, this YouTube channel is a live stream of a podcast we then edit. So I know that there were questions about that. We are a forensic psychologist and a journalist. I was a TV reporter for 10 years. Dr. John Mathias has been a forensic psychologist assessing criminals for three decades. We also yeah. happen to be married.
1: 26 years. 26 years.
0: 26 years. All right. I do i, also don't happen-
1: know. I I'd have to go back. You're <laughs> thirty
0: that. now at this point, babe. We're older right. than we think.
1: Yeah. We can round <laughs> we also, up.
0: We also happen to be married. And on our podcast or last week, we were joking about being in separate rooms because he's in one room of our house and I'm in the other room of the house and we're on split screens right now. And we joked about that. Well, John, I don't even know if I've told you this, but some people thought I was saying we slept in different rooms that we now (laughs) are in, are in a house with different bedrooms. That is not the case. So no one.
1: Yeah. The, the separate rooms means that we're, the show is being broadcast from separate rooms because of the way our equipment is set up. We're working towards joining forces to be in the same room, but we haven't quite figured it out yet. Right. right. So no, we're not in separate rooms. We don't sleep in separate rooms, but we do produce our show from separate rooms.
0: And I love that we even have to explain that.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Hey,
0: everyone. Let's start Hit An Hour this week by explaining that we do not sleep in separate bedrooms. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) What a peculiar beginning.
0: I'm glad we can clear that rumor away. (laughs) Uh, In addition to that, yes, for those, again, new to this, we are doing something different that podcasters usually do not do, something that is new in the podcast realm, which is we record our videos and our live streams and then share them later on our podcast. We didn't always do it this way, but we didn't always have a YouTube channel. And that's why this format has changed a bit. We're taking feedback. We're working on doing a separate podcast soon, pre-recorded as well as our lives. So thank you for those that joined with us for our Friday night hidden hour live. The BTK episodes that we asked for feedback on have been well
1: received, right, John? They've yeah, it seems there's a lot of interest in the BTK murders and Dennis Rader himself, who's the BTK killer. So we're gonna Present a four to six part series on that, on him.
0: Yes. And that will be pre-recorded. Some people, we we have our podcast back. Some people are saying they miss our podcast. Our podcasts are back, but yes, they've shifted. But we will have our pre-recorded edited podcast as well as our Hidden Hour Lives, both. A lot to cover tonight. John and I have been talking about a lot of different topics at our table, our kitchen table, our dinner table I don't say dining room table because it's not a dining room. We don't have a dining room. Someone said that once. Why do you call it a dinner table? I'm like, well, it's not our coffee table. It's not a dining room table. (laughs) (laughs) We occasionally have dinner on it when we can get rid of all of the arts and crafts (laughs) from our child. So it's our dinner table. One case that John and I have been covering since it happened in 2021, it was a Mother's Day case of 2021, is the case of Tristan Bailey. It's a heartbreaking case. We covered it in multiple episodes on our Patreon account, our Patreon episode, patreon.com slash hidden true crime. Tristan was only 13 years old. Unfortunately, she she had a, a classmate who was 14 years old and he took her life in what the probable cause says was premeditated. He's charged. He hasn't been convicted. So Aiden Fucci is his name. He's been charged in Tristan Bailey's murder and his trial begins next month. John and I want to cover that. We've kept up to date with this trial and some new interesting things have come down about Aiden Fucci while he's been behind bars. And it's interesting. We started talking about this because of one of the questions we received from a listener. And, and I'll, I'll read that right now. So from curious Jane, she asks, let me also share one other thing about the murder. Aidan Fucci is charged with murdering Tristan Bailey. He was 14 at the time of his crime, his alleged crime. Stabbed Tristan over 100 times. So I mean, just horrific. I don't know who's been following this. It's it's a horrific crime. For those on our Patreon, I'll I'll post it so everyone can revisit it. We covered this back in 2021. I've been so confused by Aiden, and I think many of us have. You know, how can a 14-year-old do such an evil thing to a classmate that he just allegedly targeted? And so from Curious Jane, we have this question, can there be such thing as a child psychopath? And most people say no, but we've talked a lot about this, and I wanted to ask you here, John.
1: With Aiden's trial coming up on February 6th, So that would be a little over a week, right? We thought that we received this question. In fact, we received multiple questions about whether children can be psychopaths. So we thought that, that Aiden would be a good way to dive into that topic. It's a complex topic. The research on childhood psychopathy shows that there are children and adolescents who do have features of psychopathy. They tend to have some traits. Okay. But whether you can diagnose a child as a psychopath that's an entirely different question. Generally speaking the answer I think to that is no and it's something I would I would stray away, you know, I would stay away from diagnosing a child as a psychopath because, you know, it's a very I think it's a very pejorative and dangerous label to stick on a child that's still developing and their brains developing. My stance is that that no, I wouldn't typically diagnose a child as a psychopath. But that, that doesn't mean that children don't have some features of psychopaths. And in fact, one of the markers or one of the variables that's indicative of later psychopathy is a child that's callous, a child that's callous and unemotional, a child that doesn't have any empathy, a child that has almost no remorse a child that doesn't care about their performance. And I I don't mean your typical child that wants to watch TV rather than do their homework. I mean, a child that absolutely is indifferent to anything to do with their life that has to do with holding them accountable. They don't participate in sports or or activities. They don't do their homework. And then they have a tendency to blame everyone else for those issues. Those are some of the markers of, of childhood psychopathy. Probably the most important one is this this callousness trait there's been some research linking children that are absolutely callous, and what that means essentially is that they lack empathy, they are very unemotional. It seems like those qualities tend to then translate into later problems or later psychopathy. I want to talk about something from I've mentioned her before Essie Vitting she's a British psychologist and researcher she has written a book called Psychopathy, S.E. Vitting. I, want to, I just want to read her take on this because I think, I think she says it really well. And I, I agree with her. She says, I would not advocate labeling children as psychopaths. The label of psychopath has connotations of an individual being depraved, dangerous, and beyond redemption. But like any other feature of our personality, psychopathic traits and their behavioral manifestations can change over development and can change following intervention. As such, it would be overly harsh and irresponsible to use the psychopathy label in reference to children whose developmental outcomes are not fixed. I prefer to talk about developmental risk for psychopathy or psychopathic, psychopathic traits in children. So I, I, that's, that's largely how I feel i think it's it's i think you can have a child that's that's expressing some psychopathic features but i i wouldn't i'd be disinclined to call a child a psychopath i think that's that's harming the child, and you know for the most part we don't know so so it's it's a really it's a tricky issue because yes children especially overly callous children. And again even that can change. Even children can learn empathy at some point, but overly callous children have a greater risk of developing psychopathy later on.
0: I think then my next question for you then is wanting to read a little bit about Aiden Fuji behind bars. Can I do that? That that's the news that came out this week. I mean speak, speaking of callous, so let me let me read that.
1: Before before you do that, we, we should talk a little bit about some of his behaviors when he was arrested as well. Yeah. When he was picked up, he was in the back of the police car. And he actually, I believe he did a selfie that he did. Where he, was, he was making the peace sign and he said something to the effect of has anyone seen Kristen? <laughs> I mean, right, talk about talk about callous.
0: It was a Snapchat video recorded after his arrest yeah they
1: also have that on camera on the police cam from when he was riding to you know to the detention center but he was he was over the top indifferent and remorseless and callous in the back of that police car and he know he knew very well that well i, sh- I should he hasn't been convicted so i should qualify that but he he seems to have known that that his actions were horrendous and over the top
0: i have the video Do you want me to show it right here okay this is aiden fucci on a snapchat video after his arrest we're,
2: we're having fun in a <laughs> top car yep tristan what's up guys yep. tristan if you can walk out the. when you see this in a month okay. and, this.
0: and sorry about i didn't warn about Language I didn't know there would be for those that are sensitive. I know there's some here, but that also shows just how callous that was. That is him after being arrested. That That's about, to me, as callous as you can get. That that shows no remorse after doing what he did to her.
1: To follow up with that, there's reports from his stay in detention that he is bragging about the manner in which he murdered her. That he's he's calling other inmates who were in there for murder with by using a, a gun. He's call he's referring to them as sissies. He's usually in a, a stronger term than that, but I'll use that term. But he's he's essentially mocking other inmates for not using a knife and not committing a murder in the brutal way that he did. So he's mocking inmates that have committed murder using a gun, essentially, which is just unbelievable for a 15 year old, especially a fifteen year old that's gonna go on trial. He's doing these things knowing that this can be used in court. That's
0: can I can I read some of that article now? So this is now, this is this month talking about Aiden Fuji behind bars. So he was 14 when Tristan Bailey was murdered. He's 15. It says he's 15 now. It seems like he would be 16, but 15 perhaps. The report portrays Fuji as combative and bullying, fighting another teen inmate and forcing others to write him items. One teenager told jail officials that Fuji's been saying he's going to stab me up. He's going around saying we're all... Yeah, word I won't use because most of us in here are in here for shooting someone and killing them. And he says he is real because he stabbed a derogatory name for a woman to in the face it and take their life. It's like he's got a high off of it or something. In one report from January 2022, it says inmate Fuji was found to be extorting from the inmate by using fear. So manipulation. And it goes on. They were not housed together. But Fucci was able to manipulate and extort inmates by threats and intimidation. When officers entered his cell to obtain the items back for the other inmates, he became highly agitated and made threats against the police officers, against their lives. Inmate Fuji made threats to kill their families while beating on his cell door in a loud, vicious manner. It goes on to say that he's a bully and that he got into a... Uh, a serious fight hurting a fellow teen inmate. I mean, whoa.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There was some implication early on in this case that he might resort to some type of defense that portrayed him as a traumatized child. And initially, some of the arguments I saw were that he was quite meek and that he was the victim of trauma from his childhood. And yet here you're seeing a very different picture. Here you're seeing... Someone acting out, someone filled with rage, someone who has no remorse, someone who's callous and unemotional. I I guess you could argue that jail can be a vicious place. And I, I guess you could say that maybe some of this behavior is a function of his environment. He's trying to establish himself in the pecking order he has to resort to this type of behavior to be taken seriously i guess you could say that but but even that doesn't seem to fit this picture his behaviors are so extreme and he's he's threatening officers and their families this isn't also this isn't just about him trying to intimidate inmates he's going way above and beyond that and all the time he knows that all of this all of this is recorded this is in reports that officers write every day all of this can be used against him in court. So I think for him to do this, knowing that he's going to trial in a little over a week is just, it's astonishing. It shows that he's completely unaware of what he's doing or that he doesn't care.
0: Someone is saying, is this not psychopathy?
1: <laughs> right. Well, that's <laughs> right. That's where we started is this psychopathy. Again, I, you know, because of his age, I, I don't think anyone could diagnose him with psychopathy. In fact, technically speaking by by my ethical standards for example you you there's no such thing as a diagnosis of psychopathy in the DSM 5 the current version right. so thanks for sharing that the, so in fact you you'd have to die because of his age you'd have to probably diagnose him with conduct disorder you might get him with oppositional defiant disorder so those are disorders that would apply to adolescents and kids they would not apply adults if you were to a, diagnose an adult with the DSM you would give them antisocial personality disorder which is different than psychopathy psychopathy is a much more severe diagnosis so think of psychopathy as a subset of antisocial personality disorder it's it's it's, it's a much smaller group of people because it's more severe is he a psychopath i i, I don't know i you know again ask like when he's 18 <laughs> yeah they're right ask when he's 18 does, does he look like conduct disorder he certainly looks like it. But again, I, is he a psychopath? I don't know, time will tell. When I think about this issue, I sometimes think about so I don't know if our viewers have seen the the movie we need to talk about Kevin, but it's a really fascinating examination of childhood psychopathy and it's based on it's fiction, but it's based on a child who ends up killing a number of students in his in his high school and the question that it raises, there's also a book, by the way, of the same name. The question it raises is there, there's some implication in the movie and in the book that Kevin was born a psychopath and there was nothing his upbringing could do to change that. And so there's a certain inevitability to it because his family comes across as being relatively healthy and normal. However, I think there's, there's a troubling element to the story and to the movie, which is that his mother tends to be a little distant. There's, there's moments in this story when Kevin is reaching out for emotional support and help, and his mother really doesn't know how to deal with that. So his mother, is, she tries to connect to him, but you can see it's a real struggle. So I think the, the book also raises the question about if a child doesn't have their needs emotional needs met at some level, and let's say that they have some propensity towards psychopathy, do they then become a psychopath? And I, I think this movie in particular really, ra- it 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 brings those issues to the forefront because it's more subtle about how it deals with them. So there was a British psychoanalyst by the name of D.W. Winnicott, who talked about the, the idea of good enough parenting. And what he meant essentially was that as parents, we don't need to be perfect. We don't need to be totally in tune with our children and responsive to all their needs. But we do need to be Reasonably attuned to their needs, we need to be sensitive to their needs, and so there's a there's a delicate balance there. We're not going to be perfect. We just need to be good enough. And I, I think again, getting back to this movie, we need to t- we need to talk about Kevin. I think it raises that question too: Is the character who plays Kevin's mother? It's played by I think it's played by Tilda Swinton. Is she a good enough mother? Is she responsive enough? Let's say let's say hypothetically, Kevin is has some propensity towards the things i talked about towards callousness he's he's not very emotional he doesn't have a lot of remorse is 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 somebody like that who grows up grows up in an environment where the mother or the father are not particularly in tune with the child are they at greater risk of becoming a psychopath i think the answer is probably yes the thing that's interesting about the movie though is that this is not an abusive family. This is a normal middle-class family that provides for their child. They have a nice home. They, they do everything right. On the surface, they look fine. But then when you, when you look at the interactions between Kevin and particular, his mother, you know, that something's a little off. She's not, she's not that responsive to his needs. She's a little cold. She's a little distant. So I, it's a tough question. For as far as getting back to Aiden Fucci, we know that his father was a registered sex offender. His father arrested was, for he,
0: child abuse.
1: He was convicted of child abuse in two thousand and four. He had sex apparently. I haven't seen the police reports. I guess if we were going to dig really deep into this case, we'd probably have to get those reports. But he was convicted of a sex offense with a fifteen-year-old in two thousand and four. He received two years probation. In 2016, he was convicted of battery. He got into a fight at a gas station. At the time, his son was with him. He was placed on probation for that. He, When he was under the child abuse conviction in 2004, he violated probation. By the way, probation violations are a big deal. So when you're on probation, and if, if I'm assessing a case or a situation, one of the highest risk factors for recidivism or reoffense is a probation violation and the reason is because when you're being supervised in the community by probation you're well aware of that right you 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 know that there's going to be severe penalties if you break your if you violate probation so to do that is very antisocial <laughs> to do to do that is is a really bad it's a really significant red flag for future criminality because essentially you're under the wing of the law, and you're flouting. You're 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 essentially telling your probation officer, "I don't care. I don't care about the law. I'm going to break this. I'm going to break the law anyway." And in, in the case of his father, Jason Fucci, he actually went back and served his full sentence. So what happens when when somebody's on probation? A lot of times they're they're put on probation with the understanding that if they violate probation. They will go back and, and serve their full sentence. And that's what happened with Jason Fucci.
0: Donna Lenner writes, in my opinion, Fucci illustrates the effects of both nature and nurture. He may have been born with tendencies, but he has also been drastically affected by his environment. I think that's really important to mention because Sticker Shock wrote, my parents failed me. I am 50. I never had my needs met. I haven't killed anyone. People choose to murder.
1: Yes, I, first of all, let me just say to sticker shock that, uh, I'm sorry that happened. I I feel for you. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's one of the biggest tragedies in life when our parents fail us, you know, nobody guarantees, we, we can't, we have no say over who our parents are. So it's just, it's a lottery, right? And it's, it's such a tragedy when our parents just don't meet our needs. You know, again, getting back to this idea of good enough parenting, you know, it, it, it doesn't. It's not a Herculean effort to become a good enough parent. It just takes some effort, and so I, I feel sorry for him because or her. I don't know, Sticker Shock, who you are, but, but it. It's just, it's horrible when parents just don't even, they have children and they don't even bother to pay attention. And I agree with the, I agree with the assessment of Aiden Fucci that, you know, my, my take is that psychopaths are both born and made as well, that we might, there might be some genetic propensity towards psychopathy, but the environment is what's going to either express or inhibit those tendencies. So the environment, the environment is what creates the psychopath.
0: This also goes along with the book we're reading this month in Dr. John's book club, Dr. Bae's book club. It's Making a Psychopath and I've been reading it and it's essentially about this. So for those interested in this subject and what we're discussing, I really recommend this book. John got it for me for Christmas, thank you, so that I can <laughs> participate and be a member yeah, of a- this book club. And it's been, a, it's been a really interesting book to read. I, I really do recommend it. And I'm not just saying that because it's your first book. I keep thinking about what I've been reading in there. It does go along with this.
1: Yes, right. It's completely relevant. I think discussions about psychopaths are among the most common questions we get. And the reason is because psychopaths, although roughly one, one and a half percent of the population are psychopaths, and most of those are male, by the way. They do such damage to our societies and our communities. They're they're so destructive. We all want to know how can we see these people? How can we how can we adapt to them? What can we do with them?
0: Certainly the cases that leave so many questions in me trying to understand the world we live. So Yeah, that
1: uh, that case, that case, by the way, yeah, like many people, that case shook me to the core. And I mean, I I I do this for a living, and that case was just mind boggling.
0: Yeah. I think that crime is difficult to understand. And when the perpetrator is a child, it's even more difficult to understand. We will be following this case and this trial for those that are following the Tristan Bailey case. It's heartbreaking.
1: So there's, I want to address a quick question here. I noticed clumsy clairvoyance said, could this be acting out if he was abused? It's a good question. I think it depends on what we mean by acting out. I think it is acting out to some degree, yes, in the sense that acting out would entail usually having some feelings of vulnerability and then trying to project strength or trying to transform those feelings of vulnerability into something else, power, strength, something along those lines. So in that sense, I think it's acting out. But I, th- I think this goes beyond acting out in the sense that acting out can be more of a transitory phenomenon, whereas this seems to be something deeper and more enduring. And that that would lead us... And that's not to say that people with personality disorders don't act out. They do. But I, I, think, I think this is something a little deeper than acting out. I think this... Because I would see acting out as being more momentary. So I think this is closer to something that we would call characterological.
0: Anything else you'd like to say about this case? I I have a couple other questions, which take us to some other cases, but I want to make sure we cover everything you want to cover here.
1: Yeah. There's some, one other interesting thing they found, and I'm not sure if they're going to present these at trial. I think we need to, you and I will try to follow the trial a little bit. I don't know if it's going to be broadcast live. So, we need to look into that and see how much of this trial we can can follow. But they found when they, when the police searched his residence, they found a notebook and they found drawings on his desk and in his notebook that were violent and had satanic themes. So I think that was interesting too. That would be, that would be more evidence that this was a very troubled child and, One of the drawings apparently was a nude female with her arms cut off and blood dripping from a number of wounds. And there were some marks on her genitals that showed blood. Uh, And so he's doing, he's, he's creating these drawings when he's 14 years old. You know, it's one thing for a 14 year old to kind of experiment with some dark drawings. It's another thing for a child to draw something like that. Those types of drawings are, are unusual and so I think that gives us a little picture into his, his mind, his psyche. I think it shows this is a child who was having a lot of violent thoughts. We have talked about Brian Koberger and maybe some of his obsessive violent fantasies and violent thoughts. I think you have a lesser version of that here with, with Aiden Fucci. I, I, I don't know that his violent fantasies were persistent or constant, but I, I do know, based on the, the notebook and the drawings, that they bothered him enough or they were, they were haunting him enough that he had to put them on paper. So I, I think that's significant in the sense that, especially if the prosecution is trying to use those, they're, they're going to portray someone who's extremely violent. And they're, I'm sure they would love to use those, those drawings to show that this is someone, this is not a normal kid. This is not a normal kid that was struggling with some dark thoughts. This is a kid that was struggling with really, really violent thoughts that he then translated into action.
0: Lamisa asks a question that's been asked by many. So to set the stage with this question at his, I believe it was his preliminary hearing or it was, it was a arraignment, one or the other shortly after Aiden Fuji was arrested and charged. He appeared in court. And he was looking around and talking about demons and acting very odd. So Lamisa's question is, Dr. John, do you think Aiden Fucci was malingering in those videos of him in jail? I actually thought they looked disturbingly real. I actually thought they looked like he was malingering, but that's interesting. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. A quick word from our sponsor. While Shopify has already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world, did you know Shopify can do the same thing for your very own retail store? With Shopify, you unite both in-person and online sales, tracking every sale in one place. Hidden True Crime uses Shopify's tools to help us build marketing campaigns for all of our social media platforms, and their plug-in tools are as unique as our business, allowing us multiple ways to accept payments and promote our store. Plus, Shopify's help is always there to support our success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash hidden true crime, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash hidden true crime for a $1 per month trial period to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash hidden true crime.
1: It's yeah, it's a really interesting question. My short answer to that question is I don't know because I don't have enough information. You'd have to observe him consistently in jail in court appearances and you'd have to see whether he's showing similar behaviors whether he's seeing these demons whatever that means I don't know if they're hallucinations I don't know if they're voices it's not clear what he's doing there but you'd have to track that behavior over time to get you know you'd you'd want to get a baseline and see if that's unusual behavior or whether it's normal behavior and whether it's consistent from what i can tell to engage in the type of hate behaviors he's He's showing in jail and to to engage in these these threats and this intimidation, in some ways that's strategic. So it seems to me that it seems to me that yes. if he was let's just say hypothetically he's showing some symptoms of psychosis or psychoses. And my guess is that the behavior so that the intimidating behavior and this other behavior he's now showing us wouldn't necessarily be consistent with that type of behavior. In other words, he's showing that he's a little bit higher functioning than someone who's consumed by demons and voices and hallucinations. Now it's true that there's different levels of functioning with schizophrenia and schizophrenia doesn't always mean that someone's like a raving lunatic. There, there are schizophrenics that are quite capable of planning murder, for example. The issue is, can they do it consistently? And it seems to me that the demons and whatever it is that he showed us that one day, it seems to me that he's not consistently showing us that and that he's, he's more strategic and higher functioning than someone who might consistently be experiencing hallucinations and seeing demons.
0: Jean Marie asks, do these thoughts naturally come to their minds or do they learn this behavior, this thinking somewhere?
1: I, usually it's, it's going to be a function of Childhood experiences. So I think for the most part, those types of the violent thoughts are probably learned. There might be, there could be some slight genetic component, but for the most part, I think thoughts would be learned. I would see those violent thoughts as being a function of his environment. Just like with with Koberger, who was bullied throughout his childhood. My guess is that he developed violent thoughts as a response to feeling helpless and seeking t- some type of revenge towards his abusers. I don't think these thoughts just arise out of nowhere. I think that they're they're learned and they come from our childhood experiences.
0: After a lot of requests for YouTube memberships, we created those. And today for those uh, asking about different tiers, we now officially have different tiers. So, you can go check that out. Thank you to those who have joined and are our hidden gems. John, if you're, is this a good time to move forward with the next question?
1: Yeah, I think so, sure.
0: Okay. We're talking about psychopaths. And so, this is actually a question we've received from many of you. So, I'm going to read the question from Patty J, but uh, (laughs) to all of you that have asked this question, consider it your question asked too. We're going to jump back. Uh, into Brian Koberger really quickly that's what we've been talking we've been talking about him a lot the past few weeks few months Um, and the tragedy in Moscow Idaho is Brian Koberger a psychopath and I do have a video to share here too so just let me know when you want me to share that or or if I can because you mentioned this video earlier today and I put it together to share
1: Yes. The, so to answer this question, I know so many people have asked this question: Is is Brian Koberger a, a psychopath? I can't reasonably answer that because I don't have enough information, and I would have to sit with him in jail to do a full psychological evaluation before I could begin to answer it. But, however, I did attend I a it. I did attend a seminar today. For most of the day by Peter Langman, who I've talked about a lot. Peter Langman is probably the foremost researcher on mass murder and school shooters. And it was it was quite fascinating. So when I was when I was listening to Dr. Langman speak, I was thinking about Koberger to some degree. And Koberger, by the way, would would we talked about this early on before we even knew who the suspect was, but I was saying early on that he did seem to fit the definition of a mass murderer rather than like a serial killer. Although, I, you know, it's possible he could be a serial killer. He could have other crime scenes or victims we don't know about. Langman, I, in terms of mass murderers and sh- school shooters, Langman identifies three categories. One is what he calls psychopathic murderers, the other is what he calls psychotic murderers, and the final group is what he calls traumatized murderers. And as he pointed out, there's not, they're not mutually exclusive. There can be a lot of overlap between the different categories. You can have a psychopath with some features of psychosis. You can have a psychopath with some trauma in their background. So, so sometimes it's a little hard to figure out what's what, but by and large, his argument is that mass murderers tend to fit one category better than the others. And in terms of Koberger, and again I'm not diagnosing him here but in terms of Langman's categories he definitely tends to kind of fit into the psychopathic category. And you might say well why is that? And so yeah. the so there's there would be several reasons for that. So the, this this quality I talked about earlier in children about being callous and unemotional, we know from his Talk account that he talks about lacking emotion and he talks about a lack of remorse, right? So he's he's telling us at the age of 15 16 that he's kind of fitting some of this stuff that he's again if there are some psychopathic traits in childhood he's giving he's giving us a picture of those through his own description in fact he's he's in some ways he's diagnosing himself which is really peculiar but he's doing that and so i think you see some of those qualities uh, another quality of the psychopathic mass murderer is sadism there there tends to be some sadistic qualities to harming other people, and I think given the nature of those crimes, we talked about this we've already talked about this a little bit, but the the crimes were overkill in the sense that he went way above and beyond what he had to do to harm the victims. If his goal was to kill them, he did that way beyond what would normally take to harm it, to kill an individual. That might suggest that he was potentially deriving pleasure from it, or that he was somehow being sadistic in his behaviors and actions. So I, I think that's another big quality with psychopathic mass murderers. Another element of that category, the psychopathic murderer category, is, is narcissism and grandiosity. We know that Koberger was always trying to be the smartest one in his class. He was the, trying to be the smartest one in the room. He was Trying to impress his professors with how smart he was he he had this thing about being the smartest person wherever he was, and not only that he he wanted to prove it. He wanted to show you that he was. There's some element of grandiosity there. I'm going to call it grandiosity because again, I don't know him well enough to I don't want to confuse that with the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. Would he fit that category of narcissistic personality disorder? I don't know i mean there's there's a lot of overlap there. But there's definitely some grandiosity, and and this comes into play too with this. I think there was this belief that he could commit the perfect murder. There was this belief that that he he could transcend normal social, moral constraints. I think he saw himself as better than people, smarter than people. I think he saw himself as someone who didn't have to abide by normal limits and normal social conventions, and all of that would be consistent with someone who's grandiose. I made the analogy with Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment because I, the, because Dostoevsky, who wrote that novel, is very interested in trying to create a character who can get away with murder, who can commit the perfect murder, and have no repercussions from his behavior. And I, I think you have something very similar here, oddly. I mean, that book was written in 1866, but I think Koberger. In the same way that for Dostoevsky this was an intellectual exercise to see how his character would respond to committing a murder and whether he would feel guilt or remorse, whether he could go on with his life in a normal way, I think in a peculiar way Kohlberger has the same perception. He's studying murders. There's almost like this clinical detachment, and we know that he he we know that he developed the survey. He wanted to interview murderers and he was asking questions to them. And one of his questions, his last question was. After you've committed the crime, what are your thoughts and feelings? So I think Kohlberger is, he's not only asking those questions, he's believing that he can can enact a crime so that he can see himself as the subject of his own study. He's his own case study. And when you think about it, a lot of that, we've talked about this before, a lot of that has to do with, I think, him trying to, that there's a part of him that feels probably somewhat weak and helpless and vulnerable. And he's trying to triumph over those parts of himself. If he's going to commit a a murder, if he's going to commit the perfect murder, he wants to show us how strong he is. He wants to overcome all those feelings of weakness and vulnerability. He wants to show us that in fact, like Raskolnikov in Dostoevsky's novel, he wants to show us that he is this person who can, move beyond social constraints move beyond morality and commit a crime without any negative repercussions and in fact this is a little bit off topic but the philosopher nietzsche who was writing around the time he's old, he's a little bit younger than Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky precedes nietzsche but nietzsche actually took some of those ideas like this idea that raskolnikov represents the ideal or what he would call the super, a superhuman being or a human being that can stand above the law, stand above moral constraints. Nietzsche developed that idea into what he called the Ubermensch. So the, Nietzsche's ideal human being was this notion of the Ubermensch that could stand outside of all moral constraints that could live without limits. And that person would reinvent humanity. And so actually I think Nietzsche, Nietzsche borrows from Dostoevsky in the sense that he's taking this character of Raskolnikov, and he's trying to create this Ubermensch, or sometimes called the Superman, that is in many ways similar to many criminals, Kohlberger maybe being one of them. But there's there's many psychopaths see themselves that way. They see themselves as existing beyond all limits, beyond all moral constraints. I think you kind of see that with Koberger here. I'm gonna commit the perfect crime. This isn't gonna bug me. All you losers that, you know, follow the law and follow moral constraints, you people don't deserve me. That type of thing. I think I've tried to answer that question about whether Koberger's a psychopath. I, you know, again, my short answer is I wouldn't diagnose him as such, but there there seems to be a fair amount of evidence that would place him in Lang- Langman's category of a mass murderer with that type of presentation.
0: Next question, which leads us to some things going on in the world today, this month. Some heartbreaking mass shooting that's happening. A- in fact, well, I want to share one thing. Our our little guy is in pre-K, and he came home and let us know that they had a drill. And what did he call the drill, John? It was not a fire drill.
1: I think, didn't he call it a shooter drill or something? It wasn't a
0: shooter drill, but it was lockdown drill. He had a lockdown drill, something John and I never experienced as children. And we asked him what that was. And he explained that it's like a fire drill, but you stay inside, you turn off all of the lights, and you go under your mat in case someone's trying to get into your classroom. And... While I am very grateful for lockdown drills and understand why they need to happen. It was definitely like a heavy moment for us to finally have a kid who, you know, is being prepared for that. And, and, you know, he already has so much fear to, to think that that's um, added to it. And this leads us to the next question, because this January in the United States, there were a lot of, mass shootings. Not all of them were at schools. So, nor were they your average, I think we're used to the teenage school shooter. Uh, a lot of these shooters were older. So, I'm going to read you this question from a listener, and I'd like to talk about it. X 222 writes, watching your show on replay. This was last week's show. Uh, Regarding aging out, she put in quotes, of following up on violent impulses, Uh, I think that it is a cautionary idea. Consider, for example, Stephen Paddock, the 64-year-old who killed 60 people in the Las Vegas shootings. I don't think he had any prior offenses. And then right after that is when the news broke about Monterey Park, California. And she wrote, and now Monterey Park, clearly an older person is the perpetrator. The rule of thumb seems to be shifting. I'd love to hear Dr. John's take on this phenomenon. And then after they wrote this, there was one other in California and the, the, the shooters were 72 and 66 years old in Half Moon Bay. I can't remember how old each one was. 72 was Monterey Park, right? And then 66 years old. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you about that.
1: Yeah, the the my first thought about that would be, and I'm going to reiterate something I've said, and Peter Langman said it today too, which is that there's no one universal profile of a mass murderer. Most mass murderers, most school shooters in particular, tend to be younger, but I think I think there is potentially maybe a bit of a shift. And so what what Langman said is, you don't want to consider a profile, but you want to look at patterns. So I, I like that because I, I think there's a difference between a profile and the, and patterns that we can see from research and from from experiences that are probably more telling what Langman said is it's more useful to think about multiple profiles for mass murderers rather than one profile. And it's usually better to think of mass murders in terms of patterns that they tend to exhibit rather than a particular profile. So I thought that was excellent, but, but there, there does seem to be possibly an emerging pattern of mass murderers that are a bit older. I don't think we have enough data to really suggest that. But you mentioned Stephen Paddock. He's the infamous owner of the largest mass murder in U.S. history. It was, it, I, I guess that you know, if you're not counting terrorist attacks like Timothy McVeigh or nine, you know, the nine eleven tragedy in terms of a single event with victims that were targeted and a gun was used. Paddock would be the most severe mass murderer in u s history i I think that some of the same dynamics are at play with the older mass murderers as with the younger ones so Langman's basic thesis was that violence is a it's a transformative act in the sense that the term he used i don't i don't particularly care for this, but he would talk about that many of the younger school shooters Their goal is to go from zeros to heroes. In other words, they feel like losers. They feel like they've accomplished nothing. And they feel like by committing mass murder, they'll become famous and they'll become heroic. And that's sort of how they see the world. With older mass murderers, you might have a version of that. But I think it's more about what I would call unrealized potential. So I actually, I came across a book called Of Human Kindness which Shakespeare teaches us about empathy. It's by Paula morantz Cohen. She has a chapter in there about Richard the Third. I don't it's for for those of you who know who Richard the Third is, he's he's one of the great villains in Shakespeare. He essentially goes on a murderous rampage to eliminate anyone who can stand in the way of the throne. And then he can once he gains the throne, he continues to murder. So in many ways Richard the Third I think is is probably the first great mass murderer in literature. I thought that was a really interesting example because Richard III is certainly not an adolescent or a young man. He's considered to be more of a middle-aged person and he would fit that profile of an older mass murderer. And what's interesting about Cohen's argument about Richard III is that she she essentially says that it was his lack of empathy, his ambition to take the crown, but mostly the fact that he was a middle-aged person that hadn't achieved his goals in life, that he had all this unrealized potential and it was easier for him to murder and to act violently to achieve his goals than it would have been to achieve those goals through normal channels. I think it's a fascinating argument because I think there's something there with older mass murderers. I think there's there's something there about unrealized potential. that I think mass murderers that are older, I think they're they have grievances about how they've been wronged over the course of their lives. I think they probably feel like in some ways, maybe they've been failures. Maybe they haven't achieved their goals and expectations. I think also they realize that the clock is ticking. You know, they're dealing with their own mortality. That in and it itself creates a lot of anxiety. I've talked about terror management theory before and how our mortality tends to create a lot of of potentially a lot of psychological issues for us. So I think you've got this combination of unrealized potential with looming mortality. Potentially, you might be seeing these types of people acting out more and engaging in violence due to some of those elements. You know, we've also lived last six years or so, we lived in a really polarized environment. And I think grievances are running really high in this country and around the world and perhaps maybe older, some older folks are experiencing a lot of frustration. They're disgruntled. They are having more violent thoughts because they don't know what to do with those frustrations. They realize they haven't achieved their goals or their aspirations. I think you've got so many elements in play here. So I And also the media. Social media is such a big thing. These mass shootings are splashed on every page. You know, I, th- I think you've got Potentially, you have the perfect storm for more of these types of mass shootings with an older demographic, unfortunately. It's, it's bad enough to have to worry about school shootings with teenagers and young adults. But now I think potentially, maybe you're looking at a little bit of a shift where older males in particular that are frustrated with life and they're at the end of their rope and they have these grievances, this is the way they're expressing it.
0: One thing you talk about with Chad Daybell is terror management theory. Uh, That's in our earlier podcast about Lori and Chad Daybell, which we encourage everyone to listen to. We'll be covering that trial uh, in detail in April. But you mentioned terror management theory or taught us all about it. During that podcast, could that also play a part then is what what you're saying?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that with the clock ticking for some of these... These older mass murderers, I think mortality is more likely to play a larger role. I should qualify that, that the clock's ticking for me too. I'm getting older too. So that doesn't mean I'm going to go out and, and commit a mass murder. It does, I think, at least for me, it does mean that I have more awareness of my mortality. But I, I think there's there's a healthy way of dealing with that in an unhealthy way. The healthy way is to, to acknowledge it and to, to know that you have some anxiety about it. And to process that and cope with it as opposed to being deathly afraid of it and trying to push it away where then it becomes more of an issue. Oh, I just noticed a comment about somebody had mentioned, somebody from Canada had mentioned that a 70-year-old a man shot up uh, a, a condo or something because of a grievance about the Homeowners Association. But that, that's what I'm talking about, is those types of knee-jerk reactions to grievances that are being handled in a violent way rather than through normal channels of problem-solving and communication.
0: Quinn B. writes, I, at 52, just started to process my own trauma. I want to thank both of you. You are so knowledgeable and relatable. I'm learning so much from Dr. John about psychology, so just a gratitude post. We appreciate your gratitude, Post Quinn, and we appreciate you being here. And it's never too late to process
1: our traumas. Yeah, thank you. That's it. It always takes courage to deal with our hurts and tragedies and traumas. So thank you for doing that. That's that's brave.
0: Lamisa Filipino. She's been with us from the beginning. I'm so glad to see you here. She states. It's my trauma anniversary date, February 1st. And I'm so grateful to both of you and to this true crime community for the conversations. We have some questions, John, from many of our listeners that we've been saving here. They've okay, come okay. throughout the chat. This is from Amy in, in Boston. Okay, Amy, thanks for being here tonight. She writes, Dr. John. I see in chat, and she's she's. This was back when we were discussing Aiden Fucci, but I think we can put this with Brian Koberger, with any I think male criminal who's been charged and convicted. She writes, Doctor John, I see in chat that he has a fan girl base. Please give us insight on that. Why do women go after these men in prison? Heinous acts.
1: That would be that would be such a long discussion.
0: And should we do a hidden hour on that discussion?
1: I think so. Yeah, we've talked about that. That's an interesting question. It's a great question. It's one we've talked about a lot, but I think we should probably pick that up later.
0: Amy, we like the question. We're not going to forget it. Perhaps we'll start with that next week. So thank you. To those asking if we'll be updating the Vallow Daybell podcast in the future, absolutely. Our original podcast, we will be updating it. We want to wait until after the trial. And then as far as covering the trial, we plan to cover that in detail. Uh, We want to see that case beginning to end. We care greatly. We've learned to just care a lot about many of the victims in that case, and we want to see it through to justice. Levelheaded asks something about Brian Koberger. Do you think Brian's upbringing has a huge effect on what he did? Do you think the constant research by family – on others' murders and other things in his life caused him to be triggered and the reason for it. I hope not, by the way, because our son is certainly being raised in an environment where we have a family business and true crime. So
1: I, I would struggle to answer that question because I think we're still learning about his family and family culture, and we're getting some help from some of our community. I'm going to give a shout-out here to Julie Holden, who is helping to put together some documentation from Brian Kohlberger's mother and sister and giving us a bit of a glimpse into the family. But I think we just, I don't know enough about the family and the family culture to really comment at this time. I'm going to get back to Langman again, since I just took his webinar today, uh, that one of Langman's categories is traumatized mass murderers. And the examples he gave of people that fit that category came from families that were extremely dysfunctional, extremely chaotic. There was usually substance abuse in those families, domestic violence. They were broken families. Oftentimes there was abuse, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. And so in, th- in that sense, Kohlberger doesn't seem to fit. I think there was trauma in his childhood, but I'm not quite sure what it was. We know the bullying played a huge role, but on that issue, bullying can be, if it's severe, bullying might be enough of a trauma to push somebody towards murder. But a lot of kids are bullied and never murder, obviously. So theres I think theres there has to be other underlying elements with Koberger that we've, you know, mental health issues. And some of those might be related to the family culture. But I, I think we just don't know enough about the family culture at this point to really Get a, a accurate picture of how it affected him. My guess is there's issues there, but we just don't know what they are yet.
0: Marilyn Burke is asking, could you please have a show about Chad and Lori before April 3rd, which is the start of their trial? I'll say yes to that. John, could could we do that too? Just sure. Update yep. of everything.
1: Yep. We'll yeah. we'll we'll do a show on that.
0: Absolutely. Stephanie Budge reminded us all for those. Questions that have come down that we haven't been able to answer, leave them in the comments of this video. John and I are creating a system where we sit down during the week and we read all of the comments and we pick out questions that we want to answer. Amy in Boston, I think we're going to start with yours though next week, or at least we'll at least uh, answer a subpoint. point. So thank you, and uh, thank you to our moderators who are posting a lot of information. I also love what Colette Cox just posted here. I want to share this. If you're new here, please catch up and binge on the playlists. Barsotti, So Rebecca Barsati, uh, we're going to continue covering that case. Monkey Vaughn, a little boy, they have not found monkeys' remains. And uh, we have some updates there. We are following that case closely. Timothy Hazlitt out of Excelsior Springs, we will be covering that. In fact, we might be covering this next week. So if you have the time to catch up on Timothy Hazlitt, He has his preliminary hearing coming up next month, and we're still wondering if there are other victims. And then, of course, Lori and Chad Daybell. We do have those all in separate playlists, and we'll, of course, continue Moscow, Idaho. Thank you to those sending their feedback. John and I are still, what would you say, developing a system where the two of us can do everything we need to do, where we can produce for our podcast where we can produce for YouTube, where we can produce for our Patreon and YouTube members. And thank you everyone for your patience as we've brought our podcast back and are learning how to, would you say manage our time, John? manage our
1: lives, manage our lives is more accurate. But <laughs> I wanted to point out the, the Lee Perry comment here about the Papa Roger Facebook post. We were, we have some sources that have told us that it's almost certain that that Brian Kloburger was Papa Roger on the Facebook group. So, that seems like that seems like that's been confirmed. I mean, it hasn't officially been confirmed by law enforcement, but we're what would you say ninety eight percent certain?
0: There's a uh, a lot more certainty than doubt. <laughs> I don't know how to put a percentage on yeah, it. Yeah, okay. We've heard some, some 90 really plus sources.
1: percent. How about that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Suny Liberty is asking if it was a reference to Elliot Roger. Uh, according to our sources, they did not say that. Our source did not say that, but John and I s- suggested the first week we discussed Moscow, the very first week before his arrest. John suggested that this killing could be similar to you. You brought Elliot Roger up, and so I think that's interesting. Uh, yeah. No, our source did not share that. It-
1: in broad terms, it does seem like it's a nod to Elliot Roger in the sense that Papa obviously is a reference to Father. Elliot Roger is widely considered to be the father of the incel movement. Incels look up to him as a god, which is exactly what he wanted, by the way. So Papa Roger does seem to be a tribute to Elliot Roger. Roger, there'd be no other reason that I would think of that he would use Roger as the last name. Papa seems to be a reference to a father. So the father of incels, Papa Roger.
0: Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Leave your questions and comments. Leave your good reviews, too. If everyone could leave uh, your positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, that would mean a lot to us. It helps us move up the Apple Podcast ranking, and I know that we could use that. So thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Uh, We'll see you Tuesday for John's Book Club. uh, If you join the YouTube membership or patreon and there should be a link available and also for those interested in our tristan bailey podcasts, I'll, I'll head into patreon right now and highlight those so they're easier to find and then i will do i will put together our origin story soon too
1: thank you hidden gems we appreciate you guys we're so grateful that we can do this thanks for joining us
0: thanks have a great night everyone
1: good night good night